Welcome to episode 124 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Phyllis Wilson. She is the president of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation, located at Arlington National Cemetery. It is the only major national memorial honoring all women who have defended America throughout history from the Revolutionary War to today. What I didn't know when I set up the interview with Phyllis was how rare warrant officers are in the Army. And I knew that Phyllis was a chief warrant officer five, which is the highest level, but I didn't even know how rare that was too. So I'm really excited to share her story today on the podcast. And tomorrow the Women's Memorial is opening a new exhibit for the 6888, the Color of Freedom exhibit. So the memorial is always changing and evolving to share more stories and highlight more women. So it's another exciting step. And if you are a woman veteran or are currently serving in the military and you have not registered at the memorial, I'll leave a link in the show notes so that you can go to the memorial's website and register. It doesn't cost anything to register with the memorial, and they have the goal of adding 100,000 more stories to their records this year. So if you haven't done that, make sure to go do that. So let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Phyllis. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Oh, I always love that question. Why did I decide? Well, I actually not sure how much I decided and how much it just, uh, I fell into it. You know, there was no planning of this per se. I had uh, graduated high school and worked uh, two part-time jobs. One was cool, one wasn't. I was a lifeguard in Siesta Key Beach outside of Sarasota, Florida. And the other was waiting tables, not the most glamorous locations either, and trying to go to college part-time. My dad had been born and raised Amish, and uh, his entire family, even his parents, left Amish and became Mennonite. And so my dad could drive a car and so forth. But the typical Amish household, the especially the boys, only go through eighth grade. So, And my mom was a high school graduate, but not, she was Catholic. Oh, talk about trauma in the late 1950s <laughs> to have a young Catholic woman marrying a young Mennonite man. So they knew nothing about college and nobody in their families. My mom came from a very, they owned a large farm in Michigan where she grew up. So nobody knew anything about college. And I was trying to forge my way through college one class at a time and realized I'll be 25 before I have an associate's degree. This was not the pace that I was looking to um, change the world, you know? So as fate would have it, I did remember taking the ASVAB, that 
the test that we all must take to sort of see where our aptitudes lie within the military in high school. And I remembered I did fairly well. And in one of my jobs, I would typically go past a recruiting station. This goes back to some of the other stories you've heard. It just by happenstance, they're located in places, high foot traffic on purpose because they sort of wear you down almost subliminally. You know, you see it, you see it. And finally, you're like, what the heck? Let me go in and ask. But I had heard it was in the be all you can be in the army era of commercials. And I had heard about, you know, this possibility of getting college financial help. And I said, well, you know, let's go in and find out. Same thing as one of your other podcast uh, friends have shared. I had flipped through the book. It all goes in numerical order. And I got to 95 Bravo back in the day. 95 Bravo was a military police officer. And it was the also the only page that also showed a woman with a weapon on her hip. And that just looked too cool. <laughs> and I, that's what I want to be. I want to be a military policewoman. There you go. Angie Dickinson was out there on Policewoman TV shows. I'm in. I'm all in. The Charlie's Angels, that, all that era. I remember it all. And went home, told my parents what I was going to do. And my dad went with me back to the recruiting station the very next day. And he said, let's look at this a little bit more. Well, I would, said, look, I'm, but we continued flipping after 95 Bravo. We got to the 98 series in the army, which was uh, military intelligence. And we found one that actually they were, they offered me a bonus if I would learn a foreign language, which I I'd taken several in high school. I wanted to be in the medical field. So I'd taken Latin as well as some French and some Spanish. And out of all the languages that they were offering the bonus when one was German and my dad spoke Pennsylvania Dutch and it just seemed like, okay, this is along my heritage. And then when I learned I would go out to Monterey, California for almost a year for language school <laughs> and you're going to give me money, I'm in. So that's how I ended up joining the military and took immediate advantage. Even while I was out at, at Defense Language Institute, DLI, CLEP exams are free if you're in the military. Oh, I took great advantage of those. I had 45 college credits in CLEPs while I was out there at DLI. Wow, that's really a cool story of like your history and how you didn't know really anything about the military. And then you found the recruiter and and you were like on board. And I think it's so interesting that you got to go to Monterey to DLI to your first assignment to learn. It's good and it's bad, Amanda. And I'll tell you why. I went to basic training, you know, one platoon of women and with three platoons of men in the same company. It was in the early 1980s. And this was still a bit of an experiment to have women training with our weapons and doing all the things the guys did. And I had grown up a tomboy. I had two younger brothers that one year and two years younger than me. So we were just this trio. And because I was a little bit older and more better coordinated, I was always outdoing them for the longest of time. And so I never got to the mindset that, you know, the, the, the boys, the men were more athletically inclined or anything. That's crazy talk. So off I went. So I go to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, get through basic training. And then just as you're starting to learn how to be a soldier and conduct yourself in that way, you go out to almost a very relaxed California college feel campus for nearly a year. And then after you finish all of that schooling, I had a couple more places to go, one in Texas and one in Massachusetts. I end up over in Germany in a very tactical environment while we're still defending the Fulda Gap against the Soviet Union. And uh, they took it very seriously over there as well they should have. But I came from this almost like surfer chick kind of mentality to suddenly, what? You know, I mean, there it was, it was a rude awakening. 
basic training did not be pre- prepare me for what I was about to, to be involved in, but I absolutely loved it. So you had quite the culture shock. You went from basic to really laid back and then back to like, oh, like the real world intensity. The real army of it all. Yes. Yes. Very different. And what was it like to be in Germany? Because you were still, were you in your early 20s? I was. Yeah, I was. But I was a German linguist. So I landed in Germany, read all the signs, spoke the language. I struggled because if I'd never traveled outside the country previously, well, Canada, that doesn't count. (laughs) You know, I mean, I didn't feel a culture shock, put it that way. But I I heard other peers of mine and especially family members, military family members that were in Germany that were feeling a bit alone and not ostracized, just sort of lost because they didn't know the language. They couldn't read the signage and, and those things. And it just never dawned on me, at least not right away, until I went to Italy. Then I could suddenly, you know, you think you understand, you don't until you have to go through it yourself. And you're like, I, what? I can't read every, I don't know where I'm at. I'm turned around. And I'd never felt that through Austria or Germany. So yeah, a little bit of a culture shock, ultimately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because if you know the signs and you know the language, then it's not as complicated. And then when you went to Italy, you were like, oh, this is what everyone was talking about. Yes. And so did you travel to Italy or were you assigned there after you were in Germany? No. Well, the great thing about Western Europe, and of course, while I was there, the the Iron Curtain was still in place. So all of Eastern Europe, you couldn't travel to it. It was it was a chore just to get to Berlin because you had quite a stretch if you were going to drive through East Germany. And I'm an Intel soldier. So with a top secret clearance, they were not... It frowned upon the idea of us going into an area where, you know, the Soviets were working. But Western Europe is so small in comparison to, you know, we think state by state. These are countries, but they're smaller in many cases than a couple of the states in the United States. As an example, my brother came over. We were living in southern Germany at the time. In one day, we had breakfast at my house. We drove through the Black Forest. He wanted to buy a cuckoo clock at the Black Forest. We had lunch in Switzerland. He had to, We had to stop at the border because he wanted his passport stamped. We came out of Switzerland into Liechtenstein, got his passport stamped, came into Austria, got his passport stamped, came back into Germany, got his passport stamped, and we were home for supper. Yeah, that... That puts it in perspective. Yeah, so you, it's easy to go and visit all of Western Europe if you are assigned anywhere there. Uh, we went, we did just a long weekend with the USO bus trip out to Paris, France. You know, you get there on a Friday night and you're riding the bus overnight Sunday to get back home, but it's totally worth it. Wow, it sounds like such a cool experience. And so, besides all your traveling, was there anything else from your time there that really stuck out? You know, the mission, absolutely. Um, it was a different era, you know, and again, women weren't quite as well incorporated into all of the areas. And I also, during that assignment, I had two baby boys. <laughs> and so there was all of this. We were in out in the field, what we call the field, which means we were out sleeping in tents, freezing our butts off, come wintertime in Germany or roasting in summertime in Germany. But we were we were out and away from garrison and away from our home, probably on average 14, 17 days per month. And so having little ones realized 
being married to another soldier with babies in that kind of an assignment, uh, rather problematic. We actually went to our lieutenant colonel, we were in the same battalion, and asked if one of us, myself, could be assigned to a different organization, just not that far, 20 miles away, to sort of balance this situation. And the commander absolutely refused. He would rather see me have been, I could have been chaptered out for having small children. And it's, it's an honorable chapter, but it's, I, I raised my hand for four years. I'm like, I'm doing the four. I just would like to do it in a way that is not quite so problematic. So anyway, I stayed where I was uh, and completed my tour there, but a uh, great mission. I was a voice intercept operator. So I listened uh, with headphones to people that spoke German, but that were our enemy. So East German, typically military officers, keeping track of where they were arraying their forces and things like that. So I learned a great deal about order of battle or how forces array themselves on a battlefield, which trust me, (laughs) before this, I knew nothing and didn't really want to know. But once I understood the interrelationship of it all, it made a lot more sense. And then I fell in love with learning the different organizations, size of our adversarial units. I can't name an American helicopter. Well, maybe a couple now that my son works on Chinooks. Before that, absolutely not. But I could name every single Soviet, if whether it flew or it was driven, I, I knew what it was on site. Just it's a different, different life, I suppose, huh? Yeah. I mean, we could probably spend like a whole hour just talking about your first assignment and the challenges of motherhood and getting married and living in Europe. Well, actually, my husband got over there just before I did, and I was flying over there seven and a half months pregnant. And he wrote me a letter because, of course, this was in the 80s when you wrote letters and there was no cell phones, no any of that. And I got the letter and he said, don't come over here. This is going to be so hard for all of us, especially with a baby. He's like, please just stay where you are and ask for, you know, the op, take the option to get out. I'm like, you married me. I think you know who I am. There's no way I, I got to see this for myself. Of course, showing up to your first permanent duty assignment at that point, seven and a half going on eight months pregnant is not the way you want to first walk through the door. If you have anything to say about it, which of course I did not instantly, I think I was looked upon as a certain kind of soldier even though in my mind, I'm one of your best soldiers, you know, and you sometimes you have to believe that of yourself before you can actually show it to other people. Probably wasn't quite that certain of myself at the time, but inside of me, I knew what I had to give and that I could make a difference. And I wanted that opportunity to prove it. You guys were in Germany for four, were you in four years? Three years. I did a four-year tour, but by the time I got done with all of my schooling, that's a great thing about being an army or a military linguist. You're in school for a long, long time. So I really was only overseas for two years and three months. And then did you guys come back to the States? We did. Yep, we sure did. I came back, planned at that point. I had my military college money. (laughs) And with two baby boys, I said, you know, I'm going to go back to school and become the nurse that I've always wanted to be. And now I have the financial wherewithal. Plus I was married and he had applied and we just found out that he'd been selected for warrant officer. So he was going to go from being a, an NCO, non-commissioned officer, to becoming a warrant officer. And we fully thought since his first term was in Berlin and then his second assignment was there near Frankfurt, he's got to have a U.S. assignment next. And wherever he's at, boys and I will fall in behind and, and I'll finish up my education. No, his next assignment was to Augsburg, Germany once he'd completed warrant school. 
So did you guys follow him? We did. Fortunately, the whole time he was through warrant officer candidate and then warrant officer, um, his first officer basic course as a warrant, all of that I took advantage. I actually stayed in my college coursework, but I also found a licensed practical nurse school of nursing that I could complete all of that in 10 months. And they, they granted me, since I had so much college already, they granted me that I didn't have to start at the beginning. I started like in May when they started in February, and then I graduated in November. He had arrived in August back over to Germany. And so August, September, October, November, we were apart. So just four months, then we fell in over there again. And I love Augsburg, beautiful place. What a crazy story. It's what we do, but I do find it interesting because I have friends, even to this day, that will tell me that they have been together for, you name the number of years, and they've never spent a night apart. And I'm like, you've never been in the military then because none of us could ever lay claim to that. Yeah, my friend was taking a college course. Somehow they got on the discussion of how many people have been separated from their spouse for more than two weeks and nobody raised their hand. And she was she was like, people in the military don't understand that it's so abnormal for the average American citizen to spend time apart from their spouse, especially for, you know, not like a Monday to Friday business trip, but like an extended period of time. For months or maybe a year. (laughs) Yeah. How did you guys communicate? Did you communicate by letters? When we were apart, yeah, mostly letters. Of course, back then, boy, to call from Europe back to the States on a landline could be very expensive. I mean, you'd have to forecast 50 bucks or so to make any kind of a phone call. So like once a month, we'd have a real phone conversation. Then normally it was religiously, almost like a letter a day kind of a thing, because you're madly in love, you're young, you got all these great stories to tell. So you guys went back to Europe and then how long were you guys overseas? We did about a total of seven years in Germany through the 1980s. By then, of course, I had left active duty, but I had stayed in the Army Reserve. And as we were coming back to the States in 88, I think it was, I got a letter from personnel headquarters and basically saying, hey, you know, we've looked at your records and it seems that you would be qualified to apply to become a warrant officer. Well, now I'm married to one and I had had such great mentors as there's a lot of warrant officers in the military intelligence army community. And some of the best mentors and coaches I've ever had were warrant officers. And I thought, I'm not ready to do that. I, yeah, I'm still wet behind my ears. You know, these guys were like the sages. They were the gurus of all things military intelligence. I'm like, I'm not ready. But I remember they, we lovingly call our warrant officer ones wobbly ones for a reason. And they're just getting their feet up under them and so forth. And I talked and asked counsel from a couple of people I really admired. And they said, yeah, why don't you do it? So in 1989, I went to Warrant Officer Candidate School, which is makes basic training seem like DLI, surfer chick kind of mentality. Oh my gosh, Candidate School was, it was really a testimony to how bad do you want this? How badly are you willing, how much are you willing to put up with? Because it was... I felt like hazing 101, if you will, but you know, we survived. And then it's the rite of passage. I think it's not too dissimilar in a way, although the the Navy chief 
rites of passage, uh, I don't think last weeks on end. <laughs> Ours do. But nonetheless, we, we, we come out the other end. The attrition rate was fairly high. I think we started with about 75 and graduated just under 20 of us. So yeah, a lot of people are like, no, I'm not. And it really wasn't that obviously I'm testimony. It wasn't undoable. It's a question of how bad do you want it and how much are you willing to put up with? <laughs> and some of them were, were you know, very senior non-commissioned officers. I'm talking E8s and E9s that were in the program. And they, within three days of starting, they would turn in the warrant officer candidate rank and say, you can, you can put this where the sun does not shine because no soldier should be treated this way. And they would just walk out. I think we should talk about what a warrant officer is because someone listening might be like, what are they talking about? And just to clarify, especially because like you said before we started talking that the Air Force doesn't have warrant officers. So can you talk a little bit about what they are? A warrant officer, I'm an Army warrant, and, and the Air Force did back in their more, I'll just say it, I'm retired now, their more brilliant days, you did have warrant officers. It's the only branch of service that doesn't have warrant officers. Now, I understand the Space Force, and who do they really branch off from? The Air Force. Right now, the Space Force does not have in their structure warrant officers. I've got to just hope and pray that along the way, they'll figure this out. But so what we have, uh, warrant officers, let's talk Army. Well, let's talk total Army. There's three components to the Army. You've got the regular Army. They, you know, That's their full-time only job. You have the National Guard and you have the Army Reserve. Now, I was Army Reserve and as a civilian, I was a registered nurse. But as an Army Reserve soldier, I was a military intelligence NCO and then officer. So we still have to stay current and proficient in our army skills and tasks. But at the same time, my day job is what pays my rent and does everything else, right? So that's, I've got to pay attention to that as well. So the total army is a little over a million soldiers. And of that, only 2%, less than 2% of it are army warrant officers total. We have five ranks, right? W1, 2, 3, 4, and W5. And out of all of those five ranks, it, it still is only 2% of the whole army. So it's a tiny subset figure between about 25,000-ish warrant officers in the entire million strong. So there's not a lot of us and, and we're rare birds. They actually call a CW5 a unicorn because it's seen so rarely. And especially, I have to tell you, as a female, but that's totally changed because in the front offices for the chief of staff of the army and for the vice chief of staff of the army, the W5 in each of those offices, women. So it makes me kind of proud to know them both. So warrant officers are the technical experts. When you think about an officer, let's go all the way up to a general. The reason for general is because they're a generalist. They've been at command at so many different levels. They understand how everything operates. But let's say they're a mile wide, but only an inch deep in their knowledge of everything. But they have the connections and they know who to turn to when they need a deep answer. A warrant officer, myself, there are seven different MOSs, specialties, just in the military intelligence community. So I'm one of those seven. And so we have a very narrow, we're like an inch wide, but a mile deep in our knowledge. So after 37 years of playing in that little bandwidth, if any general turns to me and asks me about something in my skill set, I better be the one that should be able to answer that for them and give not uncensored, but very unvarnished 
advice and counsel and recommendation to the commander. And when my boss ultimately makes a decision right or wrong, according to me, you carry it out because that's how it goes. So these are the specialists, the technical experts that keep all of our equipment and our programs up and running are typically the the warrant officers across all of branches, except, as I said, the Air Force and now the Space Force. (laughs) That's what we do. Yeah, when I've learned about it, I I always wondered why we don't have them in the Air Force because of like the technical, especially like the technical branch doesn't have these technical experts and they have all these people who are more generalists. And I loved being an NCO, but as I was watching and seeing that once you became a platoon sergeant, you were focused on managing the troops, which is great, but at the expense of being able to actually do the job of which you were trained. Now, obviously, as a warrant officer, you don't get to sit with the headphones on and listen to the East Germans anymore. You manage the team that does that. But you've been there and done that. So they can't pull any stunts over on you. You should be one of the best of the best that gets selected to become a warrant officer. So you have to show some degree of leadership. It's not like, oh, you couldn't cut as an NCO, so you went warrant. Or uh, sadly, a lot of people thought, uh, I mean, I had a master's degree as a young warrant officer, and then I'd get other O grades, you know, commissioned officers, lieutenants, majors, whatever. Well, why don't you go officer and be a real officer? (laughs) Okay. So we all still struggle with where do we fit? True. Every second lieutenant in theory, in theory, outranks every CW5. But any second lieutenant with half a brain would realize, lean on any warrant officer and let them help you get your feet up under you and and steer you in the right direction. Because we'll take absolutely the best of care, especially of our company grade officers, until they they don't want us to take care of them. And then we will, we can be bad. (laughs) Yeah. When I was going through my officer training, that was the like thing they said, make sure you find a senior NCO and you latch onto them and you technically outrank them, but that doesn't mean that you you don't want them to be on your bad side, that's for sure. No, because the skill set, the things that they've lived through and have seen, they can do that. I have a son that's a first sergeant right now, and so he gets a new captain. He's you know, his fourth top, fourth new captain as a, in a company command, and uh, he's gotten pretty good about letting them know, listen, you're new here. Just walk around, get to know your soldiers. Um, Don't make any crazy initial decisions. Take a little bit of time to assess what's going on. I'll let you know if there's any problems that you need to be the face and the voice for. Meantime, when you get yourself figured out, let me continue to to manage this for. And and he's had some really great commanders that I think now understand that value of a senior NCO and an officer and what you guys can accomplish if you work together. Yeah, that's so true. People might not know, I mean, I will say it in the beginning, but you're one of those unicorns. You said that the CW5s are. And so I knew that there weren't a lot of warrant officers because I think you're the second warrant officer I've talked to out of my over 100 episodes, but I didn't realize how few there were. I just didn't know. So that's it's really cool to hear about like your experience and when COVID happened, we're connected on LinkedIn and you talked about being a nurse. And I didn't realize that you had this whole another specialty of like being a nurse and being, it's just really fascinating to hear your story. 
You know, and that's the great thing about the military is even when you decide that that full time regular army, regular air force, regular whatever branch of service just isn't working for you, the fact that the guard or reserve is out there for you too, because it's a it's a camaraderie, it's a sisterhood, it's a brotherhood, it's this kinship that you have is hard to let go of once you've you've found that. Even though it's it's man, they we can be harder on each other in a loving kind of a way. And we, you know, it, it's great. So being able to be an army reserve soldier for all those years has been amazing. And people, when they knew I was a registered nurse, they're like, why don't you become a registered nurse in the military? And I'm like, I do that all the other time. I love, I'll be honest. I love having a top secret clearance. I love getting to know things that, you know, when, but at the end of the day, the great thing about when you come out of a building that is, a special building that, you know, the cone of silence is now in, ex- you don't talk about it. You can't take any work home. It's awesome. But you know, such amazingly great things and the opportunities of staying current in that got me working with JSOC and General Crystal in Iraq. I mean, how cool is that? I'm a nurse and I'm working with the best of the best. I mean, Delta and, and Night Stalkers and everybody that you can think of. And General McChrystal, whom I absolutely admire and, and adore, I mean, I would follow him. As I said this before, there's few people in this, I am a Christian, so let's be clear on this, but he could go to the gates of hell. And, and if he turned and go, come on, Phyllis, and step over, I would step over the line with him. I trust him implicitly. He is an awesome leader. And, and to, get, to go to Iraq and do that, but while I was in Iraq as well, that same son that's now a first sergeant was over in Taji. He was able to get over to me and I was proud to pin E5 sergeant on his chest in Iraq together. And we had Thanksgiving dinner. He said that's the first time in four years he had a Thanksgiving meal with a member of his own family. Yeah. So and I'm right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you don't put yourself out there and offer yourself up at times and into things that just make your stomach just go into knots, but once you're in it, you're fine. It's the idea of how do you get there that typically tends, and that's true of life. There's a lot of things you think about. Oh, but I could, probably couldn't. Ooh, just put your head down and go forward. Suddenly, you're there. It's not so bad. Actually, in hindsight, you're so glad you did it. I just don't want to live with regrets. That's the thing. I wish I had. I don't want to do any of those when I get much older. Boy, if I'd only taken that opportunity, you know, I took every chance that the army would make available to women during my eras, you know, and now to see rangers and sappers and everything else that they have this opportunity for. It's just incredible. So true. Before I left for my Afghanistan deployment, my commander gave me the quote, when you come to a great chasm in life, jump, it's not that far. And that was like how I got through my deployment because every time the military was like, go, go on that convoy, go do that thing. And I was like, okie dokie, like I'm going to jump. And then I did it. And like you said, once I got outside the wire and, or was in meeting with the Afghan people, it wasn't as bad as I thought. It was like the fear could paralyze you from doing something, but you just have to jump and go do it. It, it's so true. I, uh, one of my coworkers at the, the women's memorial, she came to me and she's, we're trying to get, put her more out in public speaking arena. And she's just a little bit scared of it all. And she, she knows her stuff. She actually um, participated in the Miss Veteran America program. She's brilliant and just has so much to give and so much to share. And she, doubts herself. And so I had her watch the Steve Harvey jump YouTube video again. 
you're never going to get to the heights that you expect. You're never going to get the things done that you want to do in your life unless sometimes you got to jump. Pray to God that parachute opens. Sometimes it's going to open late. You're going to have skinned up knees. But you know what? When you're 85 or 90, that's, that's my thought. When I'm 90, 95, 100, and I'm reflecting on my life, did I jump? And, and, and to your point, when those chasms show up, you can what if it till the cows come home, but just, just do it. You're not going to regret that you at least tried. You'll regret you didn't even make the attempt. So did you say reserves the whole time for the rest of your career or did you go back on active duty? Well, I went back on active duty and see, that's one of those great things I, I love to explain is that for about 15% of the Guard and Reserve are full-time. So they're active duty all the time, but 85% are not. So that's that one weekend a month, two weeks a year misnomer that you always hear about. Yeah, not true. So when the first Gulf War happened in 1990, my husband was assigned to 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, had two little boys. I had just completed the year before my warrant officer schooling. And uh, the day that the president was able to mobilize reservists, my phone rang and I was told to report. And I reported to Fort Bragg and I actually stayed on active duty orders for three years, leaving in 93, and then went back to my regular nursing job and uh, reserve time. Mixed and matched, had some extra schoolings and opportunities along the way until 9-11 happened. And then I actually lived in North Carolina, but my unit was at Fort Meade, Maryland. And I was a platoon leader and they started taking just parts of my platoon and sending them very quickly after 9-11 with the languages that we had, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistanis and so forth, over to support the special forces contingents that were already arriving in theater. And suddenly, before you know it, I'm like, I have no platoon left. It's just me. And fortunately, that's when I uh, got an email from the military saying that they were looking for volunteers for a particular opportunity. I thought I knew what it was. And so I, yeah, put me in. It was not what I thought it was. It was actually turned out to be something so much better and dumb luck. And I ended up first going to the Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg and then down to Special Operations Command at at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And I was there then from 2003 to 2010. And with uh, just a short break going back to be a nurse, that near about seven years was full-time with Special Operations Command. And then I applied for the active Guard and Reserve to be part of that 15% of the Guard and Reserve that's full-time and was accepted into that. And so from 2010 until I retired very early 2018, I was AGR, Active Guard and Reserve. Yeah, I think I think people don't understand the flexibility of the Guard and the Reserve that you can like go back and forth and that as life changes, it does open a lot more doors and it's not just I have to serve active duty and then I'm done there is a lot more flexibility. And I think it's important to talk about and your career shows that. Yes, absolutely. And and it really, I think it was a good mix and match between and the opportunities, because once I came back on, on AGR, that's when I had the opportunity to serve as the command chief warrant officer for the entire Army Reserve, 205,000 soldiers. So I have a lieutenant general, a command sergeant major, and a W-5 that makes the command team there. And we got to travel the globe to visit our soldiers that were from Afghanistan to Korea, Japan, Guam, you name it, we probably were there. We even got to do 5K Army Reserve birthday runs in Kuwait, Bagram, Kabul, 
Yeah, yeah, lots of yeah. Get up early and go run a 5K every other morning with with your soldiers. That was it was good, but I, I really enjoyed being out there and, and checking, getting the pulse of the soldiers, not just Army Reserve. You talk to all your troops out there and find out how things are going. And then the great thing is you have the ability and the ear of somebody that can change things right. that need to be fixed. You don't have to wait. Well, we'll run it up the flagpole and we'll see how long it takes and maybe something will happen on the next rotation of soldiers that are in, in country, right? Now we can fix it usually within a couple of days. That's really cool. That sounds amazing and such a wide career. And so you were like the perfect person to be in that job. And it just sounds so cool that you got to do all those things and see all those places. Again, I, you know, it's all based on put yourself out there. Th- those things aren't going to come to you. When I, I didn't even know there was such a position as a command chief warrant officer, and I'm a W-4. And then I become a W-5, and I start hearing these few things. And they hadn't been around terribly long, to be fair. It's like command sergeant majors. They didn't come into fruition until the 1960s. You think they've been around forever? They haven't. And so now with this new W-5 rank and then these command chief roles. And when I heard about that there was one for the Army Reserve, I half kiddingly told another a, a woman, but a, a CW5, Denise Scarborough, shout out Denise, still a friend of mine. She's out in Washington State. And uh, I told her, I want that job. She's like, what job? I want his job. And she's like, okay. She gets an office call, gets me in there. I talk with him. I ask him a few questions. What do I need to know? What can I do now? It's a year plus before he's going to change jobs. What do I need to do to get myself prepared if I want to get this job? And he was very candid and forthright. And I really appreciate that. He was retiring at the end of it, of what I, his recommendations were to me. I took them all to heart, wrote them all down, (laughs) did them. And then when it was time to apply, you know, just, oh, and the interviews, that's the ones that will make you feel like you're going to throw up or something, right? Right. It's like, just get through it. You'll be okay. (laughs) You know, and, uh, and then wait, the waiting process when you want something so badly um, and you're just hoping, please let it come through. And then it does. And then you suddenly you're even more scared because I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. What do I do? <laughs> so yeah, keep breaking ground. That's all I can say. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today because you have, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the memorial behind her. And so let's talk about your role with the memorial and why you decided to become the president of the memorial. And and we could probably talk about the memorial forever. Oh, we really could. Absolutely. It is so gorgeous. So behind me there, you see, is this curved wall, which was just a retaining wall built in 1932 as the ceremonial entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. Oh my gosh, right? Every time I park and I'm walking towards something, how did I get here? It's amazing. So back in 32, and then it was sort of the depression. Things sort of fell to disrepair. Plants and vegetation and trees were all grown up around it, ivy up the sides. And then in the 1980s, finally under public law, a military women's memorial was passed by Congress. And then the search began. And of all things, Brigadier General Wilma Vaught, U.S. Air Force, retired. She retired in 85, one of the first women generals. And uh, boy, she still comes to the office now. She'll be 91 soon. She saw this place and she decided that it was just waiting for us to come to rescue it. 
And so behind that wall that you see, it has 33,000 square feet that's been dug out behind there. It has a 200-seat theater, exhibit space that looks very similar to what you would expect in a museum, a gift shop, conference spaces, and a hall of honor where we really do take the time to remember those women that gave everything. So there's all of this, but yeah. So I really like to think that my very mismatched career life is exactly what set the conditions to give me this myriad of skill set to try to lead this organization. So yeah, and I retired in 18, took about eight, nine months off, and then I got uh, offered a position back in Army Intelligence as a contractor in the Pentagon. I was living in Florida at the time. uh, It sounded really cool. It was a little four-person team that was going to work on looking strategically on things for Army Intelligence, which is where I my comfort zone is, uh, yeah, I'd love to be part of this little clique. So yeah, so I came up, I was doing that. And I, in the meantime, I had become an ambassador. We have ambassadors in nearly every state across the country to help tell these hometown stories, both in speaking uh, opportunities to tell people about the memorial, but also to recognize, especially our World War II, our Korea era uh, women veterans. We have a living legend proclamation that if you're a hundred or older, we just need to know, and we will craft these and get them uh, so that somebody, whether it's a you know a family member, a nursing home, a facility, or one of our ambassadors, will get it presented to these amazing women that really on whose shoulders we both stand for sure. They broke ground that we can't imagine what it would have been like. So we do those kind of things out there to make sure the grassroots effort knows about this memorial. So. I heard about it. I was already an ambassador. And then I heard there was a search committee being formed for the next president. And I thought about it. I had started my own charity called Wounded Warriors Have Families Too. I dealt a lot with the wounded warriors, especially as the command chief. We visited a lot of at Walter Reed, Bamsey, and other hospitals. So often, you know, the focus was on the person in the hospital bed, which is the right thing to do. But when you look over and typically you see the spouse sitting somewhat forlornly over in the corner, looking a little sad, lost, and not being pulled into the conversation. Being the nurse that I am, I went over and asking typically a woman, how are you doing? Do you have kids? Where are you staying? And thank goodness for Fisher Houses, by the way. And I started coining the spouse. And they would say, I've never gotten one before. And the military person in the in the hospital bed, after a while, was like, these generals have been in and out all the time. Some of them were more excited by getting a picture with me because they'd never met a W-5 before than they were to see another general. <laughs> so it was really this weird combination of things. So we would talk with the spouses. And the more I learned, the more I got a little frustrated that, you know, do we not get it? Wounded warriors have families too. And we've got to find a way to keep the family intact. It, I mean, a lot of these traumas, while physical, there are certainly the physical part of a traumatic brain injury, but then the post-traumatic aspects and the anger management and all those other things that go with it, right? That we've got to look at how do we... How do we keep that family intact? We keep taking the, the, the wounded person, the wounded warrior to all these cool events and they're gone for four days to a week and they come back, they're all reinvigorated. In the meantime, the family's been home with a broken washing machine, low on money, flat tire. Glad you had a good time, baby, but what about us? And so that's why I formed the charity that I had called Wounded Warriors Have Families Too, where we took the entire family 
group and we did these really in they were fun but there was one day that was meant to be physically more than you ever thought you could do but as you know being a military person that's the great thing about the military is they made you do things that left to your own devices you would have never done but what a lot of these family members because they were civilians have never been been pushed to that and once they would complete like a 25 mile something one of the ladies says, I've never gone more than four miles in a day. I I knew you were crazy, but you told me we, you know, we'd have like a, a golf cart kind of a thing. We'll pick you up if you just can't make it. Oh, we tough loved her through it, though. She made it through. And the drill sergeant and some of our, our team chewed her butt pretty good. We don't use curse words, but we use everything but that to get her. And she just needed some tough love to keep going. You're not quitting. No, you're going to do this. And at the end, you watch the the family dynamics change so much. And that was important to me. Um, And so charity work for me was important. And then when I knew so much more about the Military Women's Memorial and, uh, and this opportunity to potentially apply, but you have General Vaught, the founder and president emeritus, and then we have Major General D. McWilliams, who is the immediate past president. Those are the only two. And so to your point, generals. And I thought, I'm not a general and I don't want to be, but I think a lot of times I'm letterhead and things when you're soliciting because you have to fundraise constantly. When they see a letter signed by a general, somehow that seems to have a little bit more sway. <laughs> and I'm not I don't want to shortchange the organization for my own. I'd like to serve, but it has been 18 months of pure fun. And I believe that everything that I did leading up to this job was meant exactly to prepare me to do what I'm doing now and to understand from the Revolutionary War till today, the 3 million of us that have defended this nation is just, it's so exciting. And I read the stories that women took the time to handwrite things that were important that we know that we keep in our database. And some of them are still paper copies because we don't have the money to digitize everything, obviously. But I'll go into that, what we call the book room and read some of these breathtaking stories that I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'll jump out of an airplane. But what some of those women did, I cannot fathom. But I think it's just one of those close your eyes and jump. And are you guys doing a campaign to get more stories for the memorial? We are. Thank you for asking that because we have, as I said, 3 million women are eligible to have. We have the largest repository database, searchable database of military women and also served. And when we say also served, those are USOs. Those are Red Cross nurses that served overseas. There's just so many categories beside what we think of as the traditional uniform services that because they answered the call back when we were legally precluded from serving. So we look at all of those categories. So 3 million women, we have nearly 300,000 that have taken their, what we call your rightful place in history is in our database. We can search by a myriad of things by your the years in which you served, the branch of service you were in. We just did one because of the presidential inauguration. We went in and just I just typed in inauguration just to see if there were any women that had memories in there about, and so many did. One in particular, she remembered she was in an army band for President Kennedy's inauguration. And she talked about how the entire night before, the parade, the sanitation crews were 
constantly shoveling the snow that kept falling, but they were trying to keep the parade route cleared. And it was so bitter cold. And I would never have known. I was a baby, but she couldn't even play her instrument. She had one of the, you know, a metal instrument. And I don't know whether it was a trumpet or, you know, whatever, but she couldn't play it because it was that cold. She couldn't put it up against her lips. So she just marched in the parade without playing her, her instrument. But these stories that women remember, one was a nurse that was assigned to Mamie Eisenhower to be like the nurse escorting her. I, she must have been a bit infirm that day, I suppose, but that was her memory of, of these things. So we can find all kinds of things. And now with the digital database and how people can register, it's so easy. You go to the website, womensmemorial.org. And up in the top, if you're certain you've never registered, there's a tab in the top right that says register her service. You click on that, you put your name, an email address, and it says, are you any of these six categories? Did you serve in the uniform services where you're Red Cross? Yes or no? And even if you never did, you can still create an account. The great thing about creating that account is then you can search a service woman within our database. And we have this beautiful, I think of it as like a big baseball card. It's got your photo in one side, the, your years you played ball. In this case, when did you play in the military? It's the same kind of a thing. What team were you on? Were you Army? Were you Navy? And, you know, and then your accomplishments, your awards and decorations, and then your most memorable experiences. And some are funny as can be, and some are just, oh, I cannot imagine living through that day that, that, that they remember and they share as their memorable experience. But you can read all of these. You can find incredible stories of women. And that's our challenge this year. We're trying to add 100,000 new stories. And because of how we've now streamlined the process, brand new database, brand new website, everything as of January 1st of this year. So, and, and we're about to make it where it's even easier from your smartphone, where it's very nominal information up front, but beware, we will nudge you <laughs> because the story is incomplete if we don't know your memorable experiences when you served. Because when people are doing research and we have people come from around the globe to do research, and while we do protect the PII of it all, the open data about you, what you've shared is your awards and decorations, your memorable services, your years of service. Sometimes somebody wants to do a cross-section of, let's say, uh, Philippine-American women in the 1950s in the Air Force, as an example. Well, there's not that many of them, but it still is an easy way to drill down and filter until they they somebody wants to write an article about a particular group of women or the first rangers or any rangers, you know, as we 10 years from now, man, you're going to have a long list of women that you can do an entire book and study on women rangers, women paratroopers, women divers, women, whatever. And so without everybody stepping up and putting their data into the database, we only have a partial story. And I think that's the thing that we're really trying to get people to understand, whether you served one term or an entire career, it doesn't matter. The story is part of the overall patchwork quilt. And we're going to have some, some holes in the quilt until everybody gets themselves registered. Or if you know somebody that served, you have a grandmother that served in World War II, and maybe she's no longer living. But I'll tell you, that was the group that made sure that memorial came to be. They were so excited at the idea because 350,000 to 400,000 women served in World War II. And at the time, legally, women could only serve for the duration of a war plus six months. Then they were out unless you were in the Army Nurse Corps or the Navy Nurse Corps. 
otherwise you were out and many times very um, unceremoniously <laughs> dumped. And sometimes you had to pay your own way to get home. So there were no ticker tape parades and things. And most of the women were segregated or separated into battalion size, women battalion and, and of course, one of the great groups that we're, we're championing this year is the 6888, an all African-American uh, battalion of women, the only thing like it that was sent overseas in World War II. And we're trying to get the Congressional Gold Medal for them this year. So keep watching more on that. We intend to stream that video about the documentary about them in April. Yeah, and I'll put links to everything for the memorial in the show notes so that people can find the memorial easy and see what you guys are doing. And I'll put your social media because you guys are on social media too. And so that way people can stay connected. But my last question is, what advice would you give to women who are considering joining the military? You know, that's a, that's a good one because I have four boys, that, sons that serve and a daughter-in-law that, that all serve. And my daughter-in-law joined, she was over the age of 30 with three little, my grandbabies, uh, when she went to basic training. So of course she, she calls herself the grandma of uh, her basic training group. A fantastic runner, used to go run 10 miles, nothing. The army ruined her. And now she hates running even two miles, but she's fantastic. And I'm so proud of what she has done. Again, how do you do that work-life balance? But I would say for young women in particular that are looking or considering joining, and certainly there's been some very negative things in the in the media, and especially in the past 12 months. We're not immune to that, whether you're in the civil sector or in the military. The problem with the military at times is because of the rank structure and the rules and regulations that apply. I mean, when I graduated basic training, I was scared to death of an NCO. I mean, they were like, they had complete control over my life. And so if they told me to do something, it would not have occurred to me to have you know, I mean, it just it was that much of a control situation for us. I think you have to know who you are and you also have to know that somebody's got your back, whether it's a man or a woman. Please don't think that only another woman is going to be your salvation. The military in particular is a very male oriented, male dominated uh, environment for good or bad. However you want to look at it, it just is. I mean, that kind of an environment will bring men to want to serve just as it does women. So the fact that we're only about 16, 17% of the total military, you better find a mentor once you're in there that is also a man and not just look only women and only women that look like you can mentor you. I think you do want a nice mix of all of that. Some of my best mentors were men. Some of my biggest enemies were women. So, I mean, sometimes, especially as we're, when we're younger, I think we can't seem to grasp that she can be really great and so can I. It's not an either or, which I think sometimes is a problem, but it is a physical business, especially whether you're, uh, especially the Marine Corps or the Army. We're ground combat troops. And if those are not things that appeal to you, then there are other branches of service that do not require the amount of physicality that the Marine Corps, one, and the Army require of you. So think about that and be prepared. Don't show up um, and be that weakest link. I don't, I would never want to be that. So I made sure I was out running and doing the kind of things I felt I needed to do to be prepared for basic training. I wasn't, although this smile got me in trouble in basic training um, for good or bad. They told me that the smile will get you in trouble at your first duty assignment. And from now on, every time we see this smile, get on down and do push ups. I took the trophy for high 
PT test score at the end of it because I could knock out some push-ups. Because even as a kid, if even if I was in trouble, if somebody would stare at me for a split second, my discomfiture would mean it would turn to a smile. And I'm like, I just, I, I gotcha. I'm getting down now. And I was knocking out push-ups all the time all the time, which is no harm, no foul. Uh, it's good. I think, you know, you just have to one, know who you are and know that somebody has got your back. Find, keep going until you find somebody that will help solve the problem that you have, especially, especially if it has to do with sexual harassment or sexual assault. Don't keep it to yourself. Find somebody, whether it needs to be a, an older woman, um, somebody that you call home, phone home, for goodness sakes. You know, if any of my kids had ever called me with that problem, of course, being military, it's one thing, but I can't fathom that somebody wouldn't come to your rescue. And that's... That's the sad part, isn't it? That, that we have to even have this conversation. Yeah, it, it is a sad part, but it's also really important that we talk about it because I think a lot of times people aren't aware, not as much now because it's out in the media, but I think sometimes when we don't talk about it, then when it happens, there's that shame, that guilt, like I should have known when there's nothing, you didn't do anything wrong. And so you need to speak up, get help because... Yeah, we need to talk about it. Well, that, and that's the big difference between civilian life and military life. You, you know, if you don't come back to work as a soldier, as a sailor, as a Marine, you're AWOL, absent without leave. And you can you can end up in jail for that. Whereas if you're in a civilian job and somebody at work does something ridiculously stupid and you don't want to ever go back there again, you don't have to. You know, or if you show up at the front desk and you go, I need to get stuff out of my desk and I'm done here. There's no repercussions for that. But you feel like your back is truly against the wall sometimes in the military because yeah, I just signed up for four years. If I, I can't just huh, cut up the contract, you know, but, but there are people that will help you and we want to help you. And, and that's the thing is make sure, you know, you reach out to somebody and let them know and don't let, because some of these folks that, that are the, the harassers or the assaulters are the ones that pose in public as being the most squared away military person you've ever seen. And don't think that we can't see through that anymore because there was a time when they say, can't possibly look at him. He's like the poster child of everything you would want to see in a military person. It's a great disguise. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really have wanted to do this interview for I think over a year. So I'm excited that it, our calendar is lined up and that we were able to get it done. And I really love the work that the memorial's doing. And if you're listening and you haven't registered, make sure you go and register and tell your story. And just thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.